when I was young, I idolised Madonna. And um, I was always kind of hoping that, you know, she'd come looking for me and I'd be famous pop star's daughter, like, but that never happened, of course. And as I grew up, I kind of went to myself, well, Teresa, it's not Madonna. So then it was kind of Princess Diana, no, Princess Ferguson, no. And then I always dreamed that I'd be, you know, a princess or something, that she'd come and rescue me with her husband and I'd marry a prince and that'd be my fairy tale. Like, But of course it didn't happen like that at all. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Um, it was on a Friday I was going to meet her at 12 o'clock. And I had bought a long white cotton jumper and a red skirt and I did that over what tides would go. I, I had changed them a couple of times. And um, I bought her one red rose in baby's breath because I, I always feel a red rose is very, it says an awful lot, you know, particularly one. And my husband drove me to the place where I was meeting her. And uh, the social worker um, came down to the car and she opened the door for me to get out. And uh, we walked down the street and she just put her arm around me and said, how are you? And I said, in bits. <laughs> and um, we went um, into, we were, I was meeting her in a, a social centre in, in a village in Ireland. And uh, I remember going up the stairs and I thinking, God, this is very drab. And, uh, and yet I didn't mind, you know. And uh, I went in and I sat on the chair and the social worker said to me, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm really in bits, you know. And it was like there was a drill going inside of me, you know. I was shaking so much. The journey down was fine because my sister's with me and we didn't, I didn't really think about what was going to happen, you know. I just kind of chatted to her and at Pringles and didn't really bother me. But when we got to the, t the little town where we were going to meet, um, we found the hotel. Well, it was kind of hard to find the hotel, like, but we found it eventually. And we went in and we waited for our social worker, Claire, to come. Um, Claire arrived then and we were all sitting down having tea, so then myself and Claire had to go to meet Terry. And I think the worst part of the whole day was having to say goodbye to my parents and Margaret Mary. When the social worker came and she walked away with her, I watched her walking down along that long hall, the hotel, and I thought, my God, you know, is this going, it's the first time I thought, is this going to change her? How is she going to be when she comes back? And the social worker said that if she's, if things go all right, she said, I'll come back after about a half an hour or so. And I was hoping they would. So half an hour passed, and I thought, good, this sounds good and looks good. An hour passed, and I thought, well, they must be getting on great. I felt as if, I don't know, I was doing wrong or something by leaving them, you know. I felt kind of weird, like, going away from them to meet my real mother. Like, it felt really weird, like. And I just started crying, like, and I couldn't stop. And myself and Claire had to oh, go outside the hotel and walk down the road and walk back up again, walk down and walk back up again to kind of relax me, like. And then that's when I really, really got nervous. Like, coming up in the car, like, I was kind of thinking, God, my jeans or my pants are going to be creased. Like, I'm going to, oh, my God, like, what's she think of me? Like, but, like... It didn't really care then once I got, you know, up to the place. I was meeting my daughter after 19 years. And I could hear tittering outside the door. And the next thing, um, the door opened and in she came. And, um, oh God, 
Um, it was like looking at myself at age 19, and I really, I was shook. I didn't expect her to look so like me. And I looked at her, and she, I said to her, can I hug you? And she just flew into my arms, and we hugged each other, and we cried and cried. And um, I thought, oh, she was so beautiful. Um, also, it was like, it was like those, it was like I knew her. I knew this woman, you know. Um, I had no problem with her at all. I just knew who she was. And I felt very familiar with her and uh, very comfortable with her. And uh, there was no strangeness. And uh, all I could feel was the sadness of what I'd lost, of of what I hadn't seen for 19 years. And um, I think the thing that shook me the most was how like me she was and how like my family she was and her personality. I hadn't prepared for that. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't actually prepared for how like me she looked. I went over and I sat down with her and we were introduced. No, she got up and we were introduced and she just kept hugging me. And hugging me and hugging me and I was like, oh my God, you look at her. I didn't know like what to make of it. Like, you know, it was kind of too much at, at, at the time, like to be hugging me so much. And I kind of stuck really to my social worker, Claire, like I kind of went running back over to Claire then, you know, <laughs> kind of Claire helped me here, you know, but then we were left on our own and we were, she was crying and then I started crying and she was talking and to be honest, I really can't remember what she said. That is honestly, no, I can't. And um, I just remember that all I was doing was crying, all she was doing was crying, and she was saying things, and I was trying to listen, but I couldn't concentrate on what she was saying, because I was upset, and it was just really weird, like, and then the social workers came back in, and we started taking photos, and she was holding my hand the whole time, and she kept on hugging me, and I, that bugged me a bit, like, you know, I don't know what it was. As team leader with Bernardo's Adoption Advice Service, we work very much with both adopted adults and indeed with birth parents. We find at the time of a reunion that many adult adoptees are what we would call frozen. They are meeting somebody who, although linked to them, is a stranger to them. However, for many of our birth mothers, they are, in their view, meeting the baby that they gave away. And they have an attachment way back in time to that baby, particularly those who cared for the baby for any length of time at all. So you can have a difference in that the birth mother is sometimes overwhelmed by the feelings for the baby, while the baby has grown up with other real parents and doesn't feel the same surge of emotion. And the next thing, the social worker, I saw her coming back with a smile on her face. And I was so relieved. She said, everything has gone all right. And actually, she said, she's gone to have coffee with her and um, I was just wondering to know how she got on with her, what would they be talking about and the last thing I said to her was be nice to her. Teresa had no difficulty being nice to Terry but it would have been different had she been meeting her birth father. With my father, with my birth father then um, I never really felt anything towards him and that is why it's weird but I think that's just the fact that the anon that my parents knew told told us that my birth father wanted to have gave Terry money for an abortion but Terry wouldn't have it 
and wouldn't have me aborted. So I think that um, that would be one of the main reasons that I didn't even think of him. I didn't even want to know anything about him. And whenever, if I, I was told them that maybe they might have married after I was born and if they were, I wouldn't have even looked at him because I'm completely against abortion. And um, I think, you know, when people say they're like, you know, they're going to have an abortion because like, they're pregnant, like, they don't think about the child, you know, and I think, I didn't really think of him because of that, like, and you know, you're ruining a person's life, like, because if Terry had had me aborted, like, I wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't be doing this interview and this, my life wouldn't exist and I wouldn't have had such a great life as I have had. And I think that is why I just don't think about him. But then I found out that he is dead, that he died in 1980. And I'm kind of regretting the fact that I didn't get to meet him. But at the same time, it's not bugging me. Like It's not bothering me, really. After um, we'd been together for about two hours, my daughter and I, we went down. I, I rang up my husband and my sister to come in to meet me. And we went down to the hotel to meet her mother, her adopted mother and father and her younger sister. And um, um, her mother came up to me and she hugged me and she said, um, thank you for, for our beautiful daughter. And she said, I have waited 19 years for this day for you. And they hugged me and they, they, I actually felt like part of their extended family. And they have since said to me that they would see me as part of their extended family. And I'm amazed at the ease. And um, it's like there's no strangeness between us. It's like we know each other. Um, we're very easy with each other. And... Um, uh, we get on very well together. And my my uh, my other two children as well, just took to to Teresa just like that. I mean, they um, they love her. They love her. They loved her from the moment I met her. Also, her cousins have met her, and and they all just know her and love her. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Always and ever before we married, we said to one another, we both came from, I came from a big family. And I had always the feeling that at any stage when we got married, the first thing we'd do, whether or not we had our own family, was that we'd adopt. To me, adoption was very important. I always wanted to share love with who it was that was out there. There was always someone out there that didn't have love, and to us, love was most important. The framework of my family was built around love. We, we said at the beginning that we'd adopt. We had two kids of our own, two boys, and at one particular stage, on the second, on the second birth, my wife got TB. And it gave us the opportunity to think about it. And we said, well and good, while she was recovering from the TB, we'd go along and we'd, we'd see about the adoption. They put the wheels in motion. We said, OK, we'll go along and we'll do it and that'll be it. And uh, from the time we, we put the wheels in motion, we never stopped. It was always uttermost in our thoughts. We could see no, nothing coming from adoption. Any happiness. When I was seven, Mem let me down. Dad was there as well, but he didn't really talk much. But Mem let me down. And she taught me 
what that I was adopted and because I was adopted I was special and I remember her trying to explain it to me like and you know I was kind of grand like you know <laughs> I didn't really be the like the thing I thought was great was that I was special you know I was one in a million you know I was special kind of thing no one else was so I remember the next day I went to school and I went around telling everyone that I was more special than they were and that I was more important than they were and they were all here why why and I told them all you know I was adopted and that evening I had all these people ringing up going is your daughter adopted and I'm um, here yeah yeah <laughs> and like the, you know the parents didn't kind of believe you know they kind of thought this one's kind of doting you know but um, I remember telling everyone I was special and they were all here god like you know <laughs> we're not but I think that was the first time that I ever heard that I was adopted but the first time I ever actually realised what it kind of meant was when I was about 10 or 11 and there was a programme on television, I think it was Today Tonight, and I was watching that and they had a programme about adopted children. And um, I think that's when I sat down and watched that and that's when I actually realised what it meant. Like, And I remember they said that all adopted children are spoiled and bold. And I ran around the house screaming, crying, going, I'm not bold, I'm not bold, I'm not, I'm not spoiled, you know. I was really hurt by that comment, you know. I feel like going in a minute and telling them, I'm not spoiled and I'm not bold, you know. The way that they categorised as everyone, you know, but... I think that's another memory I have now. Adoptive parents have extra tasks to do that are separate to the tasks that other parents have to do, but they're not completely different. All parents have to tell their children about the issues that face them as they grow up. And when we talk to adoptive parents, we, we, we don't talk about telling now. We talk about how to start and continue talking to your child about adoption. We feel that it's a very important task of adoptive parents to keep the channels of communication open about adoption and to make it a very big thing in their family that they're proud of and delighted about so that adopted children grow up with a good and natural and norming, normal feeling about being adopted. Your children are not your children. Terry had to go through her pregnancy alone and without support. I remember when I... When I finally re realised that I was pregnant and uh, I, I was absolutely terrified. I was terrified of of what was I going to do and frightened. I was really scared. And I began to realise quite earlier on that I would be on my own. And um, my parents were horrified. They, they, um, they didn't really want anything to do with me. I, I mean, we, we were from a small rural community and uh, having an unmarried daughter who was pregnant in 1974 really was quite um, um, I, they just didn't know how to handle it and so I was basically on my own Terry worked in a semi-state organisation in Dublin she stayed on until she was eight months pregnant and she got three months maternity leave I had some friends who really supported me very well, but we never actually talked about what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. I also um, went to the comb regularly for my checkups, and I always felt that, that the nurses were looking on me with pity. Towards the end of her pregnancy, Terry went to Cork and stayed with a family who she remembers as being very kind. When the time came, Teresa was born without trauma. I felt very much that I was living on the fringes of society and cast out by society. And um, I remember when she was born, she was very small, tiny, just six pounds, with these little thin legs, and she was so beautiful with this dark hair and blue eyes. And I kept looking at her and saying, 
but you're only a baby, so what is all this about? You're just a baby, a beautiful baby. Um, <laughs> I wasn't quite prepared for how deeply I would feel about her. I was totally besotted by her. I, I, uh, I, I, she actually spent the whole time in my arms. I would, I would have her up out of the, the crib the whole time. And uh, uh, some of my friends came down from Dublin and my sisters and that came to see me. And they thought she was beautiful. We, we just thought she was the most beautiful baby that, that, that was ever born. And uh, she was actually, she was a very quiet baby as well, and uh, she she um, very easy to to uh, to look after, and uh, she didn't cry very much, and uh, I just kept looking at her. She was really a wonder to me. I didn't have any intention of giving her up for adoption at this stage. I I had um, thought that I would be able to keep her, and I was going to certainly try my best to keep her. When Terry left hospital, she moved in with her aunt and uncle while she planned the future for her daughter and herself. And during that time, I was trying to see how I could, how I could manage in taking her back to Dublin and taking and working at the same time. And it began to dawn on me, or maybe I always knew knew it, uh, that it began to dawn on me that. I wasn't really going to be able to keep her. It wasn't feasible. I wasn't going to be able to give her... What kind of a life would I give her in a little flat in Dublin with me out of work all day? And at that time, there were no childcare facilities. And it began to dawn on me that I would probably have to give her up for adoption. Many birth mothers who come to talk to us here at Bernardo's talk about the very difficult choices that were around for them at the time that they placed their child for adoption. Unfortunately for many of them, they would say they were in a catch-22 situation and that they had no real choice. And I think if we look at the figures for children born outside of wedlock and for children placed for adoption, that right up until the early 1980s in Ireland, that fewer women kept their children. They had to place them for adoption because unfortunately our society did not recognise the unmarried mother and her child as being a valid family unit. It was usual for that time for, for mothers not to even see their babies, never mind hold them. So the fact that, that I had kept my baby for seven weeks made it that much more difficult when it came to making the decision about having her adopted. Um, but at the same time, those seven weeks are amongst the most precious in my life and I actually wouldn't have changed anything, even if it was more difficult to let her go then. Um, I think it was the memory of those seven weeks often kept me going in, in the time that came afterwards and the loneliness and the um, isolation that I felt, particularly at times around her birthdays and Christmas. Your children are not your children. Terry will never forget the last day she spent with her daughter before handing her over for adoption. I, I lay on the bed with her all day and I remember saying to her, um, I was talking to her and I remember saying to her, I'm giving you up out of love. It's not because I don't want you, but I'm giving you up because I cannot give you the home that you deserve or need. Well, the, f the fact that um, Terry actually kept me for seven weeks made me feel um, 
well, but made me feel better towards her, I suppose would be the word, because it showed that she really cared and that she wasn't one of these people who had me, that was it, didn't want to see me, didn't want to know anything, like, just let her go, like, it showed that she really cared and that it must have been really hard for her to actually give me up. But in a way, I'm glad that she did give me up because I have a wonderful parents and a wonderful family and I wouldn't do without them for the world. I remember I kept her in the room with me all day and um, I remember I bathed her and I lay beside her and I talked. I talked to her and I said goodbye to her. I cut off a little piece of her hair that I was going to put into a locket. And I had her dressed in a beautiful soft pink dress that a friend of mine had given me. And she was actually all in pink. My vision of her, as I remember in my mind, is in pink. In a little pink dress with pink clothes, pink bedclothes. And um, I had asked, I said to the nun, what is the last time, what is the latest possible time I can bring in this child at? And she said to me, eight o'clock. And at eight o'clock, I walked into the convent with her in my arms, in pink. And as I walked down the corridor, I could hear my footsteps still echoing. And when I think of that time, even now, I can still hear my footsteps as they echo down that corridor with her in my arms, knowing that I wouldn't see her again because at that time you were told that you were never going to see this baby again. And I looked at her and I knew I would never see her again. And uh, I remember giving her to the nun. And I ran out. I ran out so fast because I felt that if I hung around, I would just grab her, grab her back and run away with her. And, um, and nobody said anything to me. Nobody ever said to me how I was. There was no counselling, no nothing. I think it is true to say that there were very little counselling services available to birth mothers in the past. But thankfully, this has changed, particularly over the last 10 years. The decision to place a child for adoption is a huge decision that has ongoing complications and difficulties perhaps for the birth mother in later life and the fact that many women had to reach that decision without adequate counselling is a sad reflection on the way that we were as a society at that time. That evening Mary and Con got the phone call they were waiting for. Their baby daughter was waiting for them in Cork. Next morning they travelled down with their two sons. And when we arrived in Cork and we went into the nursery, the nun brought this caricature in with a beautiful baby in it, and she was absolutely beautiful, like a little doll. And the nun mentioned that the, the, her mother said that she slept very good at night time, but that last night she didn't sleep good at all, that she was crying all night. So that upset me an awful lot, and I felt very sorry for the baby. So when we were taking the baby home, she asked us to know would we take some little personal things that was left with her, which was a teddy bear, and little cardigans, and I said, yes, we'll bring them, which we did. And then on our way out from the nursery, I felt terrible sad for her mother. She hadn't kept her for six or seven weeks. So I thought, is she out there looking at us? In a way, I wouldn't have minded if she was because at least she'd know what we looked like and she might have felt happier. And um, we brought her home and we, we, on our way home we called into a certain shop for socks because I thought her feet might be cold. 
And then when she was in the Calicot, I wasn't satisfied with that. I held her in my arms all the way. And the boys weren't pleased with that because they were looking at her in the back seat for about a couple of miles. And I was so inadequate with her. I felt so nervous and everything. It was the same as if I was having my first baby again. And when we came back in home here, uh, Con's mother had beautiful dresses and his two sisters had beautiful dresses left outside the door and lovely cards left for her as presents. And I can still see them dresses, little white dresses with little red dots. They were brilliant. Terry's day was totally different. I remember after coming back, I got on the train and came back to Dublin the day after giving her up. And I went back to my flat and the girls next door took one look at me and I, I started to cry. And they brought me in and they gave me a cup of tea. And they all knew that I had been pregnant and what must have happened. And yet none of them, none of them asked me how I was or what happened or how was the birth or... There was total silence around that whole issue. A short time before Christmas, a friend of a social worker came to me and said that the baby's mother was finding it very hard to sign the, the final papers. So at that stage, I became very worried. So I decided that in the event of the not being signed, I contacted my brother in Birmingham and said to him that if he heard from me to meet me at Birmingham Airport, just to be there and ask no questions because I intended taking the baby to Birmingham, leaving her over with him and coming back home. But I was there was no way I was going to hand up my baby. Then after Christmas, an official came from Dublin on the 6th of January and she told us that day that the final papers had been signed. And when she told me that, I felt so, so sorry for her mother, having found it so hard in the beginning to sign that final paper. And then I was so sorry for her, but at the same time, I could not give her back her baby at that particular time. Terry, in common with other birth mothers, would have found the giving of the final consent extremely difficult. This is the one, another consistent trend in our work with birth mothers, that in the past they were sent off unprepared to give their final consent. Obviously, when one is taking a huge decision like that, it is very, a very difficult decision and very painful, and many birth mothers found themselves very unsupported at that time. Also, I think the consent is a huge issue for adoptive parents. They will have fallen in love with their adopted child by the time it comes to sign the final consent, and they are very anxious for that piece of paper to be signed so that they begin to feel more secure in their parenting of the child. Then began the long, lonely years for Terry, but deep inside, she felt her daughter was loved and cared for. I always felt that, that she was with a family who really cared deeply about her and who who, who thought about me as well. Um, when she was about nine months old, I asked for some photographs and they sent me a beautiful studio photograph, but they also sent me um, photographs taken in the home with her brothers. Uh, but the nuns had cut out the brothers and... Uh, and so I, I think they were trying to tell me something in those photographs that she was well-loved and well-cared for. I kept looking at the photograph. I, I think I wanted to see what kind of... The, there was a hand at the back of her, you know, and I, I, I really tried. I analysed every bit of it to see if I could find anything that might give me a clue as to what this woman was like that, that was looking after my daughter. I, I remember being very annoyed at the, uh, at the fact that they'd cut some bits out of the little photographs. Um... 
because I I realized they were trying to say say something to me. Um, and it would have sort of given me a picture of what the family were like. When Teresa was formally adopted, we were asked by the Adoption Society to know if, I suppose, it was to make the mother more at home, to let her see that Teresa was in a family environment, which she was. We decided to go along and get Teresa photographed with her two brothers who were both older than her. So we set about getting the, the snap taken and we, in due course, we sent it off to the Adoption Society. There she was, sitting inside in the tomb. And she all, I, I think to the present day, her little frock was, was lemon, a lemony. And she sat inside and she was like a little doll. And each of the two boys on either side of her. And we were really proud of the fact that she was gone off and she was she was part of a family and she was gone and this this snap was going to make her, her birth mother happy. But the information I received afterwards was that when the snap was delivered to the birth mother, that there was nothing in it, only the shape of a doll. The two boys, which were part of, of our family, were cut out. And to me, that was cruel. Very sadly, the situation where um, Mary and Con found that the photograph that they had willingly given had been actually doctored, if you like, by the agency before, before being passed on to Terry reflects, I think, the attitude that many adoption workers had in the past, that they knew best. Nowadays, we would hope that good social workers' va values reflected in adoption work would be about empowering people and letting people make choices. And if, that, if such a photograph was given in, that it would be passed on in its entirety to the person for whom it was willingly given. Terry's instincts were right. Teresa was much loved. On finishing work in the evening, no sooner would I have my coat off than Teresa would come up the hall to me and say, Dad, a piggyback. And I'd say to her, tea first, then piggyback. I'd hardly get time to drink the tea when I'd have to be down on my knees on the floor. And being the little lady she was, she'd jump up on my back. And there I go, down the hall, up the hall, down the hall, up the hall. And it was grand to be bringing her up and down the hall. But along with that, she'd a hold to my hair. And... My hair was long, which was the fashion. And if I slow down, Teresa would say, Faster, Daddy. Faster, Daddy. And the hall was 24 feet long. And when you'd have it travelled four or five times, five or six times, maybe often longer, I'd begin to get tired. And when I'd say, Teresa, it is time to stand up. I'm tired. She'd say, Again tomorrow night. Again tomorrow night. And I'd say, any time, but not now. I have enough. You're too heavy. My earliest childhood memory would have been going to school. And men would walk me up to the school door, let me to the school door at lunchtime, walk me out to the car, bring me back up to the school door after lunch, and bring me, come up and let me to the school door at the evening because she was afraid like I was going to be kidnapped or something that my natural mother would come back and take me away like and that would be like the shame of it like being taken up to, right up to the school door and everyone kind of going would you look at your one you know like 
you know, she, she's spoiled for it, and like, and I wasn't. It was just the fact that, you know, she was scared that someone was going to take me. Mary's nervousness about her daughter's safety didn't subside with time. On her 14th birthday, we decided to send her to America and hold her for six weeks to my sister. And prior to that, we'd heard that her mother was very involved with travel and that she probably was an air hostess. And it suddenly dawned me when all the arrangements made when I arrived at the airport that maybe this was the time that she, it could be quite possible that she'd meet her mother on the flight. And I examined every one of those air hostesses one by one as they went on the plane because I was let out as far as where the customs, immigration customs are. And I looked at all of them and I kind of sized up their ages and none of them in particular resembled her. And I thought this could happen, that this magnetism that I've often heard about, it could be just one person on that plane, could have been her birth mother. And when she arrived over to America, I rang her that night and I said, what did you think of their hostesses? And she said, they were grand, all right. I said, were they nice? They were okay. So that satisfied me, going over. So when she was coming back, when she arrived at the airport, I said, what did you think of the air hostess? And she said, grand, grand, grand. But she wasn't very over-impressed with any of them. So I was delighted with that. I think the fears expressed by Mary and Con would be fears commonly held by many adoptive parents. In the past, when the adoption order was granted, we said goodbye to the adoptive parents and we didn't have an open-door policy for them to come back and express their valid fears and, and anxieties as their children grew up. I feel now that the work of adoption workers should include affirming the adoptive parents as the real parents who are actually raising and caring for the child and affirming their rights to be those parents. When Teresa was about eight years old, one evening I was in the bathroom putting my makeup on and Teresa flew into me and stood beside me, very perky. She was always very perky. And she said to me, what was the lady like that gave me to you? And I said, I mean, you mean your first mother? She said, well, what was she like? And I said, she was lovely. And she said, did you know her? And I said, no. And she said, was she nicer than you? And I said, oh, yes, she was. Definitely nicer than me. And with that, she flew into the living room and she threw herself up on the couch. And he began hysterically crying. So I went in after her. I sat down beside her and she was sobbing. And I said, Teresa, what's the matter? And she said, don't ever again. She says, Mammy, say that because she said there's nobody nicer than you. I think openness in, in adoption will be a help to all the parties. For example, if Con and Mary had a photograph of Terry when Teresa was asking who do I look like and what did my mum look like, they would have been able to sit down and hold her and show her the photograph and give her some real information. And I find that where people have real information, they don't live so much in a fantasy world. Teresa would have had information, real information about her birth mother and her birth father and she would have got it from the people she loved most in the world, Mary and Con. Terry would have been saved from wondering all of her life since she placed Teresa for adoption. Is my daughter still alive? Is she happy? And how is she doing? And therefore one can see that all of the three parties in this adoption triangle would have been better served by having openness and an exchange of information through the adoption agency that would have allowed them to know about each other as they grew up in their separate lives, but that the link would have been more clearly there without intruding onto anybody's family directly. 
Around the same time, both mothers decided that Theresa should be made familiar with her roots. We decided that on the week starting the 21st of March when I was on a break, that we, I would definitely do something about tracing her birth mother. And on a Monday, we went out shopping, and that day was gone. So Tuesday, we were out again. So when I came in from shopping, I had my coat on and my handbag, and the phone was ringing. So I tore to the kitchen, I answered it. And I picked up the phone, it was 4 o'clock, the 23rd of March, and the social worker asked me to know who I was, and I told her, and uh, she said, the, I'm inquiring about your daughter, Teresa. And I said, why would you be inquiring about my daughter, Teresa? So she said that her birth mother was looking for her, and I said, how can she look for her? She's not supposed to look for her at all. Well, she said, all she wants to know is, is she happy? What career she's taken off on? And little things like that. So after that initial shock, I sort of uh, got my act together and I said, told her how that she was repeating her leaving and that she was very happy and that I am glad that she was actually inquiring for her rather than we going from outside. And I told her then that I had intended looking for her. And at the end of it all, then I said, really and truly, it's an answer to prayer. So there was no, there was silence at the other end of the phone and I said to the social worker, are you still there? And she said, yes. So I said, I would like to talk to you. So we, we made arrangements for her to come to the house at 11 o'clock the following morning. I couldn't wait for her to come. And she did. And uh, she told me afterwards that she was expecting me to bang the phone on her, which has happened to her previously. So she was very surprised and I said it was an answer to prayer, which it was. My decision to trace my daughter came about, um, I was reading an article in one of the women's magazines, like Women's Way or something like that, about Bernardas and how they counsel birth mothers and run groups for birth mothers. And I decided to, to get in touch with Bernardas. And um, I met with, with Nora Gibbons, and she was just wonderful. And she told me all the possibilities that... Um, that I could actually look for up-to-date information and what have you. That was May last year, and uh, I, I sort of took the whole summer to think about it and to think what I'd do, but by September I had started to attend a group for birth mothers, and I had definitely decided to go back and look for my daughter. I um, I went back to the agency with whom I place, uh, placed her with uh, um, in December, and it was like every door opened to me, and it, there was absolutely there was no hassles, no nothing. Every door just opened, and I think it's like it was always meant to be. It went so smoothly. Parents who are whether they're birth parents or adoptive parents and are thinking in the best interest of their child, which both of the people involved here clearly were know that it would be be um, a good thing for them to know about their origins. And I think that very many adoptive parents and birth, mother, birth mothers have many things in common, like seeing reaching adulthood as a step forward, and that this case where both Terry and Mary were thinking along the same, longs, uh, same lines at the same time illustrates how many things birth parents and adoptive parents can have in common. When I found out Terry was looking for me, I didn't feel very threatened really at, at the start because I I love both my parents and I knew that it wouldn't really you know change anything and at the time I actually found out that she was looking for me I was sick 
So I kind of was inside in the car. I remember, I remember Mem dragged me out of chapel one day. I didn't know why, because I was dying sick. And um, she sat in the car and she told me, and I kind of went, OK, yeah, OK, that's fine, OK, you can bring me home to bed, you know. And I kind of woke up the next morning then kind of going, Mem, come in here. <laughs> and it was, what did you say yesterday to me? It kind of all hit me then. And I didn't really feel threatened. Like, you know, they wanted me to kind of... They wanted me to, to start counselling and all that after my leaving cert. But I felt that... I didn't really need counselling because I had got it off my parents all along. Not really counselling, but they had talked about me, talked about it to me. So there's no real point in getting counselling done. So I had about three sessions with the counsellor, and she said, "You're fine. You can meet her." So I met her a few weeks after my leaving cert, and I don't think it hasn't really affected me since. Like you know, you know they said they say some people may change like towards their parents. I don't think I have. I don't know how they feel. Like well, I don't really think it has changed my relationship with them. At no time ever was I afraid of Teresa's feelings changing because I knew she loved us an awful lot and we loved her. And at no stage did I ever think her birth mother would be a threat to me. I was never nervous about it. But at the same time, you kind of think about things. and Well, I suppose I'm lucky in a way that I have two mothers who care about me an awful lot. And I'm beginning to get to know Terry and I'm beginning to have feelings for her and I've met her parents and I've met most of her brothers and sisters and they're a lovely family and I'm very lucky the way now that I have an extra brother and sister and I feel privileged in a way but um, it still hurts the fact that she actually gave me up for adoption Your children are not your children they are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself they come through you but they are not from you and though they are with you they belong not to you um sometimes i feel very sad and uh, i feel a lot of grief at uh, <laughs> at grief of what I've missed, but also I, I also feel very privileged to be part of her adoptive family. I, I feel very privileged to, to know her adoptive parents, and I certainly feel they're an enrichment in my life. But you cannot make them just like you Strive to be like them But you cannot make them just like you Your children are not your children They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself They come through you But they are not from you And though they are with you They belong not to you When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.